Have you ever uh, done something nice for someone and uh, they just sort of went, Pfft, didn't seem to care? Like, you know, I've, I've, this has happened on a couple of times at least. So we're, we're coming towards a door in a public place and I'll hold the door open and smile at the person. They'll just walk by and not, not even, like, okay, you're welcome. It doesn't feel very good, does it? And then you feel like, well, why did I do that? They didn't seem to appreciate it. And, you know, we got to tell children sometimes, what do you say when someone's giving them a little gift, a lollipop? What do you say? Uh, it looks good? Uh, no, you, you say thank you. And we have to be taught to, to say thank you. And even sometimes adults still need to be taught how to say thank you. And we just had Thanksgiving and one day a year is given to the giving of thanks or to remind people to give thanks. And that's good. It's better than nothing. But God's word calls us to an habitual giving of thanks. And now you're probably saying, well, you're kind of late to the game, Rick. This was a, a couple weeks ago, Thanksgiving, and now you're going to give us a sermon for Thanksgiving. Well, you're right. I am a little late to the game, and I'm often a little late to the game. I'm not the sharpest knife in the block. But I'm also trying to make a point here, too, that Thanksgiving, as well as Christmas, are not just one-day events for the believer in Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving is a habitual lifestyle, or at least it should be an habitual lifestyle. And sometimes, you know, we would agree with that, but things get into our lifestyles. Things, things cloud an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, this year, I was saying at Thanksgiving when we were having our meal, I, I, I was talking and saying, you know, Thanksgiving is the one holiday that hasn't been corrupted by commercialism and pagan elements and things like that. And then Jennifer reminded me, Black Friday. <laughs> I said, oh, why is it that everything just has to have some something filter in and, and take away the purity of what it's supposed to be? And the same is true for us. And what I want to get at today is that having a habitual attitude of thanksgiving is going to bring forth greater blessings in your life. On the flip side of it, and where we're coming at this from, is that the reason the world is in the state it's in is because there isn't habitual thanksgiving. One day is better than no days. But, you know, in our day, we see a lot more anger, a lot more frustration, a lot more uh, complaining rather than Thanksgiving. And then people who do celebrate Thanksgiving, sometimes they just celebrate it and call it Turkey Day. Or they don't know who they're giving thanks to. They're just saying to be thankful. We need to get it right, who we're giving thanks to, and to have it understood and continually coming forth in our life. And a lot of people are not thankful because they don't understand that they owe their lives to God and that judgment is coming. And one of the reasons joy to the world we sing is because we don't have to partake in the judgment that's coming. And that should make us thankful. You know, there's going to come an awful wrath on this land, on this world. And that's not a popular thing to talk about. People don't want to hear about judgment. They want to turn on the TV and hear the feel-good sermon. And I want to give the feel-good sermons. You know, people respond better to feel-good sermons. But I'm going to tell you today, we're going to talk about judgment in a sermon about Thanksgiving. Why? Because judgment, 
The bad news has to precede the good news and to understand that you have been redeemed and saved from all judgment, from all wrath that's coming. But the world, we tell the world that Jesus loves you. And they say, oh, that's nice, well, very good. But it doesn't affect them. Why? Because they don't understand that they are created, they owe their lives to God and that there is judgment. They're going to be accountable for their sins. And it's not a pretty picture if they knew the trouble they were in, the great need that they have, and then we told them Jesus loves you, it might affect them a little bit more. But it's hard to do that, right? However, people instinctively know that there is judgment, or at least they used to know. And that's what we start off with in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. This is really a powerful passage. It talks about people are without excuse because they know. They intuitively know that there is judgment coming. And then the second part of Romans chapter 1 talks about all the vile behaviors and all the wrong actions and all the disobedience, the things that are coming that are deserving of death. These things are understood that there is going to be judgment. You say, well, how? Well, because it says God has revealed it to them. All are without excuse because there is an intuitive knowledge, or at least there once was an intuitive knowledge. Verse 19 says God has shown it to them. The wrath is revealed from heaven. How is the wrath revealed from heaven? Well, for one thing, your Bibles. Your Bibles... The Bible is a revelation from heaven. The Bible is no ordinary book. The Bible was given by inspiration to uh, four, at least 40 different authors. There are 66 different books. The authors came from different li- times, places, languages, and, and uh, dispensations. And it all comes together in a miraculous unity discussing the plight of man and the redemption that is available to man This is a revelation from heaven. But you say a lot of people don't have the Bible. So Romans is telling us it's not just this that we're talking about, but the old church fathers used to say there are two books of revelation. One is what I just lifted up, the Bible. The other is the book of creation. And I would say what is revealed from heaven? We have creation and the conscience. Everyone has a conscience. Let me start with the conscience. Everyone has a sense of right and wrong. And, you know, it's true that some people's consciences are seared. And we can even block some of what our consciences are telling us. But that doesn't erase the fact that everybody has a principle in them of right and wrong. And that is a sign of of the image of God. Even people who we disagree with, who have... Uh, 180-degree contrary ideas and opinions of what is right and wrong, calling evil good and good evil, 
the Bible talks about. And that's what's happening in a lot of people today. And they get angry if you disagree with them. Well, they're getting angry because even though they are deceived and wrong, they still have a sense that there is a moral position to be taken here. Even though their moral position doesn't line up with God's morality, there's still this sense of right and wrong. And they appeal to that to justify their thinking. Are you with me? So they are, they are looking at things from the image of God, even though they don't know it. Atheists will tell you, will, will cry out that you are wrong in misleading people with religion. Think, well, what, why would we be wrong if there's no standard, there's no principle of right and wrong? Even though we have disagreements, there is this image of God, this revelation through the conscience. And most people know when they sin that they're, they're doing wrong. But the other uh, thing is that in the image of God, we, we love, we hate, we appreciate beauty, we have creativity, we desire significance. This is all God's attributes being clearly revealed. We love. And, you know, the most animals, animals will love their offspring, but it's an it's a, uh, instinctual thing. The human being made in the image of God can actually love through a moral precept, and it's not just instinctual. We can love others who don't belong to us. And we can also hate what's wrong, but these things have been suppressed by the truth. The image of God in mankind has been suppressed by the truth so that love has become lust. Hatred of what is wrong has become hatred for what is right. Creativity. Creativity is the image of God, but we have turned it into more of a self-expression and creating things for evil and not for good. And hatred. Hatred for the, the wrong things. So we have that revealed to us from heaven. There is, there is this moral concept within us, whether it's misguided or in the truth. We are made in the image of God. So we know instinctively, or we did at one time, that we are accountable to God. But also through creation. Verse 20 says that the invisible attributes are clearly seen through creation. And that is, you know, it's, it's amazing, the design of the human body. You know, we've, we've all heard of reports from doctors talking about how marvelous, marvelously the eye functions and everything is by design the complex code of dna and everything how it works together and it's just an amazing machine we talk about the manufacturer of a watch a watch just doesn't pop into place and function the body was created god created but outside of us beings of creation we just see intuitively we respond to the beauty of creation out there who doesn't get amazed by a sunset or by a beautiful landscape. Why do we look at fish? You like to look at fish? I mean, I like to look at fish. We don't have an aquarium, but you know, I'll put it on my computer screen and have it for a screensaver. You know, fish are amazing. And we like to look at fish and we like to you get amazed at what we see. And it's because we appreciate beauty. There's something in us that responds to Nature, because it was designed and created by God, is, it is the revelation from heaven. But a lot of people miss this. Now, I'm going to get real intellectual with you and quote uh, a New England 
guy named Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was, uh, I don't remember when, he was a long time ago, he wrote a philosophical treatise called Nature, and it really, I wouldn't recommend reading it, but there was one line that stuck out when I used to teach literature, and I, I taught Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he lived in Massachusetts, where creation is beautiful, especially in the autumn, and Well, actually, can't really compete so much with what I saw this year in Tennessee. This autumn was beautiful. I mean, something just speaks to us when we see something beautiful. And in uh, Nature, he said that, uh, to speak truly, few adult persons can see nature. Most persons do not see the sun. At least they have a very superficial seeing. The sun illuminates only the eye of the man, but shines into the eye and heart of the child. And so what, you know, this is kind of silly what he's saying, but there is a point to it. He's saying that you can be affected by the sublime in nature. He would go the wrong direction and say it's whatever it is. We know that it's the Lord behind nature, and that's really what I believe Romans is talking about here. The revelation of the wrath of God and his attributes are clearly seen through what he has made, even his Godhead. We respond, but we, we, but most people They'll see a beautiful uh, view. They'll see something. They'll admire the works of art, and then they'll just move on. It doesn't sink in. Like he was saying, you have to come as a child and understand, wow, what is affecting me about this? Who is behind this? There's more to nature than nature. That's what I get from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Thank you, Ralph Waldo Emerson. But there's more to nature than nature. And we could apply that to a lot of our Christian truths. There's more to love than what we initially perceive. There's more to joy, more to peace. There's more to Jesus. And if we don't come as little children, we just start to get fixed in our ways. If we don't come afresh every time we come to the Word, well, I've read this a million times. We've got to come fresh each time like it's the first time. And whenever we're out there saying, Lord, this is what you did. This is your creation. You made this. And in China, we would go into these very remote areas. And I I told you about the dangerous mountain roads. But we'd go into these mountainous areas, and it would just fill me with awe. The beauty, the extraordinary, breathtaking beauty of these mountainous regions and uh, we'd get out sometimes and take pictures, and, and uh, you know, it never got old to see God's creation beautiful. But what astounded me was some of these most beautiful parts of creation were in some of the most impoverished and sin-laden villages in the countryside. And there's this mix. Here you have the glorious riches and beauty of creation, and you have such wicked sin impoverishing uh, the people in these places, people destroyed by demons and by alcoholism and and just uh, given over to untold sins. And they're all in, in the midst of beautiful creation. And I just think, how does that happen? How did it happen? How does it happen? And how do lives spiral into destruction? And now, this is the key in verse 21. I believe verse 21 tells us how it happens. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Destroyed lives proceed 
from darkened hearts. This is what it is. You know, you can be in the most amazing, beautiful surroundings of God, and we all are. You don't have to be in a beautiful mountain area in China. You can look outside and find something to fill your heart with awe, and everybody does at some point. And yet their hearts are darkened, and that brings forth a litany of wrong thinking, wrong attitudes, wrong behaviors. Now, I want to look at this last part of Romans. I'm not going to shy away from this last part of Romans. We need to read this in church because people don't hear it in schools or anywhere else. And I'm just going to read through verses 24 to 31 because this is the result of the darkened heart. It says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is what we saw in China, worshipping creatures, idols and things. But we don't, might not have idols in our more civilized culture, but we worship things like money and power and, and uh, pleasures and the like. And for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Does this sound like our times? Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them. Does that talk about our culture or what people approving of sin and things that are deserving of death and they not only practice them but approve of others? And it's all a litany of behaviors and actions but the judgment is not about these actions. All of these things are consequences, outflows of a darkened heart. God wants your heart. It's not the actions. The actions are the result. It's the fruit, but it's not the root. It's the heart that God judges. He said that when Samuel was looking for David, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So the question is, where is your heart? Are you having trouble with sins? Are you having trouble Walking in the peace, the joy, the love, the victory. It could be if you're having trouble, your heart is darkened. Well, what do I do? How do I get out of a darkened heart? That's what we're talking about today. You know, it's, it's that these things produce sin. Darkened hearts are the catalyst for these behaviors. So when people resist the Lord out there, it's not really an evidence problem. Maybe you've talked to an atheist. Maybe in Oak Ridge here, we have lots of scientists who just say, science, science, science. And who's, who's their God? Science. Um, and you can reason. You can give 
evidence. There's plenty of things we can, we can recommend, resources, apologetics. There are plenty of great resources that can give a, an intellectual and scientific mind the peace and comfort that this is not just a silly kind of, this is a reasonable faith. We have a reasonable faith. But at the end of the day, it is not evidence or lacking of evidence why people resist God. It's a heart problem. It is a heart issue. And uh, I had a friend, and we used when I first became saved, I would tell I was reading the apologetics books and things, and I was telling him why I thought this was right and, and why this is this is the truth and everything. And we got into this conversation, and eventually I, I, I had this thought come up, and I said to him, look, you know, everything I'm telling you, you, you don't seem to have an answer for, but what if, and you don't think I can prove that God really exists. I said, what if Jesus walked in here right now and could just show himself to you, and you knew without a shadow of a doubt that God truly existed? Would you then follow him? And my buddy said, no. I said, well, then, you know, the problem is the heart. It's, you, it's a heart problem. It's not an evidence problem. People resist God. The Pharisees resisted Jesus. They were the most religious. They were, they were interested in God, but their hearts were set on their way, on their tradition, on their perspective, and they missed God in the flesh standing right before them. What do we miss sometimes when we are hardened in our hearts and we may think we love the Lord we may think we love Jesus and yet we are fixed our heart is set on a certain way a certain tradition a certain standard that we're used to and don't bother me with anything uh, fixing that or changing that I'm just fine thank you that's the Pharisees the Pharisees didn't want to have any challenge to to their thinking and so their hearts were darkened so that's not us right Right. So how do, you, how do hearts become darkened and how can you prevent yours from being so? And here's the key verse, Romans 1.21. It's spelled out right here. Let's read that. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, a good way to read this verse is to see what happened. You take it backwards. Go backwards. The end is their foolish hearts are darkened. How did their foolish hearts get darkened? Well, they became futile in their thoughts. Well, how did they become futile in their thoughts? They weren't thankful. And why weren't they thankful? Well, they weren't glorifying him as God. So what does this look like? How does this this look in real life? So we're saying that let's we'll start from the first part now. In this world that rejects God, Although they knew God through the intuitive knowledge, through we're made in the image, creation reveals, and we also have a history book that shares something. Although they knew, they did not glorify. What does it mean there that they did not glorify God? You know, we can get raise our hands and we're say, glory to God, I'm glorifying God. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to esteem him, to honor him. To magnify him. Well, what does that mean? It means to put him before everything else. He is the highest on the levels. He is the greater one. So everything I do, everything I think, I want to glorify him. I want it to be along what he wants. 
It's putting him first. Another Old Testament way of saying it is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, The Lord will bless those who fear him. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is not saying, I'm afraid of God, I'm afraid of God, I fear God. That's not it. The fear of the Lord is an Old Testament word, but it really just means the same as this, to glorify God. It means to esteem, honor, magnify him. I'm not magnifying my myself. I'm magnifying him. I honor him. You know, if you have good parents, some people don't have good parents. Other people do, but I'm talking about good parents. If you honor them, we might say you fear your parents. It doesn't mean you're afraid of your parents, but it means you're going to listen to what they say. You're not going to be disobedient. You don't want to hurt them. You you want to bless them. And so uh, when my parents told me to be in by 11 o'clock when I was out running around doing the wrong things, I didn't want to bother them and come in at two and and lose my privileges. That was a fear of my parents. But I wasn't afraid of them. So I was honoring their requirement, even though I would rather stay out longer, but I didn't want to lose my privileges. And I respected them and I wanted to, you know, do what they said. I wasn't afraid of my parents. I was, you know, if I was going to get a spanking. But but when I was 16, I wasn't so much afraid of that. Um, But I did, that's what we mean by fearing, in a higher respect, fearing the Lord. He's always at the forefront of our thoughts. And he's always, you know, our concern, our priority. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is glorifying God. What does he want? What does he say? So they, um, you know, on the other hand, they would not, you know, they'd snub them. It's, it's holding the door open. God has done so much for us, and you walk by and nothing, you know. And that's, that's where the wrath of God is coming. So the world esteems godlessness more, glorifies the wrong things. The world wants to do your own thing. The world doesn't esteem truth. Now truth is divided. Your truth, my truth, well, that's true for you. It's not for me. Yeah, well, you know, gravity is true for everyone. If I try to walk out of a five-story building and say, well, my truth is gravity isn't going to pull me down. I'm sorry, but it is. And uh, But that's where we're at in our culture. We are not looking to anything outside. We have become uh, our own gods. We glorify our own thoughts, self, and actions. And that doesn't work. So when we do that, we do not give thanks. We don't give thanks. We become unthankful. What does thank, thankful mean in this passage? It means gratitude. What is gratitude? Well, it's putting yourself in a position of acknowledgement of somebody you're dependent on. You receive something and, and you, you acknowledge that. And it creates a joy because usually when you're giving thanks... You've received something good. If you're glorifying God and you start to realize everything I have comes from God, it starts to change your thinking. You receive something good and you give thanks. And and the Bible everywhere is talking about give thanks. Give thanks in every situation. And it says in 1 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It doesn't mean that this situation is God's will for you. You're not to give thanks for sin. You don't have to give thanks for tragedy 
or for a past that hurts you. No, God's will for you is simply to give thanks because he has redeemed these things. He has come into this broken world as a a redeemer, one who brings redemption for your past, one who brings redemption for your sins, one who brings redemption through the tragedies. That's what God's will is for you to recognize and give thanks. And when you give thanks to him, you don't go along the route of the flesh and the world. The world is not in gratitude. The world is in anger and griping and complaining. And have you ever been around someone who's always griping and complaining? How's that feel? Do you like to be around someone who's griping and complaining? How do you feel? Oh, this is terrible. This, this stinks. And oh, this, this, this. You know what I read? There was a study from Stanford University that said that exposure to griping and complaining, whether it's you or you're hearing someone else, if you have too much of it, it shrinks your hippopotamus. <laughs> now, wait a second. Not hippopotamus, hippocampus. A part of your brain. <laughs> I just want to see if you're listening. Um, when you have continual, habitual complaining and griping, it shrinks your brain and it affects your memory, it affects your emotions, it affects things. It affects your mood. If Griping and complaining will affect your mood, which leads to futile thoughts and to darkened hearts. So God is simply saying, we want better for you. This is To be thankful is the opposite. It is good for you. It is healthy. I had a, a supporter that supported us for so many years. He's gone now to be with the Lord. But he was a rich man. He had a great job, had a wonderful retirement. And me, the missionary who's trying to raise funds, and you know, we never owned a house or anything. And, and I just was always in awe in his presence because every time we were with him, I heard so much thanks coming out of his mouth. He, it was just a natural thing. It was continually thanks. I'm so thankful for the Lord's blessing. He's always glorifying God, saying, this is what the Lord's done. I thought, hmm, I wonder if I was thankful like that for every single thing, if I would get more. And, and you know, you, you want to give more when someone shows appreciation and gratitude. On the other hand, you know, you hold the door open for someone, they don't acknowledge you. Well, why should I do anything more for you? And I think the Lord wants us to start being thankful for what we have before he blesses us with more. And there's always something to be thankful for. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The world is more on that track of griping and complaining and not acknowledging, not placing themselves in a position of humility and dependence and acknowledging that they, they owe something to the Lord. And that makes their, futile, their thoughts futile. So what does that mean? They became futile in their thoughts, vain, foolish, in their imagination. The Greek word for thoughts there is dialogismos. Did I read that right? Dialogismos. And what's that sound like? Dialogue, right? Reasoning. You, did you know you reason with yourself all the time? You're always having a dialogue in your head. You think about sometimes what you're thinking about. You are talking to yourself. We call it self-talk, but it's dialogismos. And it's, it's something that probably 90% of our dialogismos is futile. We, I mean, because we're not focused. We let things run rampant. We let things go like wild horses when we should be harnessing those horses, bringing them into line, putting bits and blinders on so we can stay focused, so that we can stay thankful. 
rather than get into this futile thoughts, the darkness that comes, the vain imaginations, and the imaginations that come, the fears, the insecurities, the complaining, the, the I was wronged, and this is bad, and, and uh, how dare they, and, and how are we going to make it? All these things you start to reason, and it's, oh, yeah, it does look bad. And then you find another part of your reasoning saying, yeah, it's going to get worse, all this stuff. And then there's the complaining to the Lord and saying, Lord, why aren't you helping here and this, that? And rather uh, than having the thoughts become futile, and foolish, you know, the Bible says, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. How do you keep your mind stayed? It means it's, it's the harnessing. It's the putting the, it's thinking about what you're thinking on. But instead of letting the thoughts go into this spiral of destruction, it says in uh, scripture that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And when our thoughts go in an opposite direction of being thankful, we are setting our hearts up to become darkened and foolish. It says their foolish hearts were darkened. What does darkened mean? Without light. Darkness gives way to what we read, the litany of sins. It's what comes out of the heart, not what goes in, Jesus said. What comes out. It comes from a darkened heart. Are you struggling? Are you having problems getting your act together? Check your heart. What's going on in your heart? Well, my heart doesn't look so good. How's that? What's going on in your mind? Well, how can I fix my mind? Start giving thanks by glorifying God, seeing God in everything, and seeing him as the redeemer of all the things that you're facing or dealing with at this time. That's the key. Everything hinges on all of this, being thankful. Not just giving thanks at Thanksgiving one day or just when you feel like it, but a habitual, habitual Thanksgiving. When I'm not thankful, I recognize it. it. That's the first step. You may not feel thankful, but you might recognize it. That's the first step. Recognize I'm not thankful. Then how do I work myself into a thankfulness? I have to start you know, glorifying God again, saying this is, this is not the end. This is not even uh, going to be a long time compared to eternity. And, uh, and I put myself in a position of, it's all you, Lord. The opposite of unthankful is being spoiled and being proud. Proverbs 16, 18 and 19 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That haughty spirit could be a haughty heart, a foolish, darkened heart that thinks it's the owner, the keeper of itself and that gets angry and distressed when nothing goes its way. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to to divide the spoil with the proud. How do you become a humble spirit? Again, thanksgiving is a place of humility. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up in due time. How do you humble? You recognize, I am not God. He is. And thanksgiving is just a sign of humility. I have received. Everything I have, I have received. So the better way of thanksgiving, let's, we, we traced it from the world, not glorifying God, not being thankful, foolish hearts being darkened. And now, let's, let's see how this works on the positive side. The better way of thankfulness. It follows the opposite track, the way of humility. And it starts with glorifying God. 
what would God have me to do? What would God have me to think? What would God have me to say? How does God view this situation? What does the Bible say about this? Am I in agreement with that? How do I get myself in agreement with that? And then we, we, we become in awe of him. When we see things out there that are good or any great thing, we thank him. You know, you can thank him because you're breathing this morning. You can thank him because your left shoulder doesn't hurt even though your right shoulder hurts. You know, let's, you know why don't you heal this? Why do you, well, thank him for the other side, you know. And we give thanks. And then as we give thanks, it puts our thoughts in the right place. Not futile imaginations, not futile reasonings, and not looking to others or basing everything on what's happened to us. Our eyes, our thoughts are off of that, off of others. And they are just placed in a position of humility before the Lord and thanking him for what we do have. And not everything's great right now. Not everything's right but I'm not going to fuss and complain about that. I'm going to thank God for what is right. And if we really start to hone in on that, we'll probably discover that there's so much more that's right than there is wrong. Even though you know the devil clouds our vision and makes, wants us to get into that futile, futile dialogismos, that, that reasoning process. And that's where our thoughts run astray. But... We start to give thankfulness, and that puts our, our thoughts not into futility, but it makes them significant. Instead of dialoguing with ourselves and, and talking ourselves into anger and bitterness and despair, we're instead expressing thanks to God and, and talking to Him about what He is and who He is and, and what He's doing and what we have to look forward to in Him. He is the hope of, of all that is going on in this world and in our lives. But if we're not thankful for that, we may not experience it because that's not the position of faith. We, we get into this position of I'm Lord and I'm not doing well and so I'm going to blame God. Uh-oh, stop, stop stepping on toes now, right? right? I'm talking to myself. <laughs> so our thoughts become significant when we are thankful and the result of that is the heart becomes full of light. We're not denying God, but we are uh, revealing that he is the one that we're dependent upon. And just as I said earlier that those behaviors proceed, sinful behaviors proceed from a darkened heart, the opposite is true. Prosperous lives proceed from hearts that are enlightened. And you keep your heart enlightened just by following this track that we've been going through in Romans 121. I mean, Jesus, look at Jesus. Jesus did nothing but glorify God. He gave thanks all the time. He, he thanked the Father before others so that they could hear him. And his, his thoughts were anything but futile. He could answer even the, the trickiest traps that the Pharisees set for him. And his heart is revealed in his death for us on the cross. His heart was never darkened and he never got caught up in bitterness because of what others were doing to him or misunderstanding him or not giving him his due. His heart was never darkened by that. He, he was on a one-track mind of, I want to do the will of God. And it may mean going through some unpleasant stuff, but so be it. 
when you come to that place, you have a heart that's enlightened. And that's where the Lord pours in, does more than ever. And then you are, you are off on a higher walk with, with God. See, I just gave you the key to a higher walk with God. Well, there's nothing to be thankful for. Again, thank him for what's good. And if, if you can't even find anything for good, you can thank him for the forgiveness of sins because all of this stuff that we have committed, we can all put, probably put ourselves somewhere in that Romans 1 list and we can thank him that there's forgiveness. We can thank him that he loves us in spite of our unloveliness. And there's a lot of unloveliness in us. You know, don't get caught up in this spiral of destruction thinking on how unlovely you are because a lot of people who love the Lord they start to get down on themselves and I was one that did it all the time we start to beat ourselves up we start to say oh it's a never-ending cesspool as if I dive into my heart stop doing that that's not a position of thankfulness instead give it to the Lord say thank you Lord you love me in spite of that cesspool in fact you have redeemed it and you cleanse it and you make it as if it's not there. And it's not. He's made you a new creation. That's something to be thankful for. Amen? Hallelujah. Shout it out loud. Right? So you thank him for that. You thank him for the forgiveness of sins, the love that he has, the hope. Yeah, but everything's not in order. All my ducks are not in order. They're quacking up. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you ought to be around me at the dinner table. Um that's the dad joke in me. I wasn't planning. Anyway, your ducks aren't going to be in order. You just get, get over it right now. Get used to it. it, it nothing's going to be all in order. It can be more in order as we progress. But we have the hope. That's what I'm saying. And this is what's happening when Christmas time comes around. It reminds us of the hope of the world. Jesus entered into all our ducks out of order. All our eggs. Is it ducks or eggs? I don't know. Whatever it is. The eggs are all scrambled up. <laughs> Humpty Dumpty can't put himself back together again. But Jesus can make a new Humpty Dumpty for us. He, he doesn't put us back together and tape us up. He makes a new creation in us. And that's the hope. And that's the hope. He's going to make a new creation out of this world. That's part of the good news of the judgment, the wrath of God that's revealed from heaven. That wrath that's revealed from heaven is simply the fallen state of this world. This world was not created to be broken and tragic and awful. And that's the revelation. He's coming. The hope of Christmas is that Jesus comes to restore and he's coming again. And judgment, the wrath of God coming upon this broken stuff is going to wipe it away for a whole new world, a new heavens and a new earth. And that's something to be thankful for. This is not the end of the story. And even if it seems like it's going on forever, it's not. Jesus has come. He has entered into our trials, our shame, our sin, our, our heartaches. And he's brought forth a hope of restoration, renewal, and glory. And he gives it to us freely if we'll receive it. Well, wait, i got to fix this. I got, you can't fix anything. Receive it and be thankful. Glorify him. You don't glorify him by fixing your life. You glorify him by loving him, magnifying, honoring him. How do you honor him? Well, i got to do better. No, you honor him by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It doesn't say without works. Your works, none of our righteousness are going to cut it with him. He's too holy. He's too righteous. But he has a soft spot for faith. 
You just say, okay, thank you, Lord. I'm free. And it's done. And that's something to be thankful for. We can always be thankful for that. And again, there's so much we can be thankful for just in our lives and our our, you know, we're taught and we're conditioned by the world, the media, our entertainment not to be satisfied. And there's some things you shouldn't be satisfied with, but there's some things you can't control. There's some things that you just have to give it to the Lord and say, thank you, Jesus. This isn't the end. You'll redeem it. You'll heal it. You'll forgive it. It's been redeemed, healed, and forgiven. And now we wait on you to see what you'll do next. This is the walk we have. And this is what we want for the church, too. We want his will. We want to glorify him. Not my church, not your church. It's God's church. Jesus is the head. What do you want, Lord? And thank you for whatever you can include us in. Amen? Thank you, Lord. Let's give thanks. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness to us. Thank you for the power of thanksgiving. Help us to be more thankful in our lives. Help us to understand and recognize when our minds are going off track into the futile thoughts. Help us, Lord, to remember what you have said and who you are and what you have done. And I pray this Christmas season as it comes in that you just help us to be more impacted by what you have done entering into our, our situations as a babe in a manger, and but not just staying there. You, you grew, you dealt with us, and you died for us. And so we just want to honor you, glorify you, and we pray, Lord, that this would be revealed as well as the wrath, that the revelation of Jesus would be mightily revealed in this church and through us in these days and the days ahead. We thank you for it, praise you that it's not by our might or power, but by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.